I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This conversation is with Gabriel Gruber, the founder of Exactly Protocol. Exactly is building an open source, non-custodial protocol on Ethereum that will bring fixed income solutions for lenders and borrowers. Today, the industry largely uses variable rates, interest rates for borrowing and lending, and the innovation here is to create fixed income. So. Gabriel discusses why this is so meaningful, uh, what the challenges are technically when they expect to be available to people, uh, what the auditing process looked like. And then we talked about DeFi. What has happened recently? What's happening in the future? What can we expect from other companies' protocols out there? What tools and capabilities are going to be available for average retailers? So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you do, please share this conversation. Give us a thumbs up wherever you're watching it or a review. Deeply appreciate your support. Here is Gabriel Gruber. All right, Gabriel, I'm excited to chat with you. You are working on Exactly Protocol um, based down in Buenos Aires, which is awesome. I have a, a company and have been down there. Love, love Argentina. Don't get to talk to too many people down in Argentina. Um, however, you know, I say, I'll say this, there seems to be after COVID and companies hiring remote, Argentina feels like they've, they're, they're like the number one country for, uh, developers working remote, you know, people working in South America have an advantage in working with us companies. Cause we're basically on the same time zone. Um, what is it about, let me start with this. What is it about Argentina that s- produces so many smart people, particularly in technology? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer, but I think we have a good uh, education system in general. Uh, used to be better in the past, but it's it's good and it's a public. Uh, you, you can go to school for free and uh, primary school and then college and university, and so people can have good education. And you know, um, many people move into technology because they can live in Argentina, spend pesos and earn dollars. So it's a good, good choice. So that's part of explanation. Then also there are so many restrictions on the exchange rate and capital controls and all of the currency that, you know, many people get into economics, finance, and then tech. So I think there's a culture of innovation and, you know, building products and, being resilient here when, when, you know, crisis happens here, it's very usual to have a crisis every, I don't know, five, 10 years. We have some problem, big problem. And we have, I don't know, probably six, seven percent inflation per month. So, you know, it's a roller coaster, but if you live here, you you make, for you, it's normal. (laughs) So you have some kind of advantage when the world has some kind of problem as post COVID with inflation. All the problems we are seeing now that the central banks printed a lot of money. Uh, so we already have a lot of experience <laughs> dealing with that. But yes, I think there's a, a mix of uh, different uh, answers to, to the question. But in general, I think there's a good quality of, of human resources and people like to innovate and to create products and technology in general. And it's a good thing to to make money because again, you can live in pesos and make dollars. 
work for a, a company in the U.S. or abroad. So I think there's a couple of, of uh, reasons of what is going on. And so, yeah, you touched on it a little bit, but we're talking about the upside for the innovation and intelligent people coming out of Argentina. What, where do you attribute the, the, how do you sort of break down and understand and maybe pass on lessons from the Argentinian inflation uh, situation, which seems to be a chronic inflation, maybe in the sense of U.S. having the global uh, currency reserve, but in my view, kind of abusing that privilege by producing, printing so much money recently. Um, how do you sort of look at like the global landscape as it pertains to fiat currency and inflation? Yeah. Um, I think that the U.S. printed like nine, the, the balance sheet of the Fed moved from two trillions to nine trillions. So it's, it's a huge amount of money. Uh, and you have, I don't know, 9% inflation year over year, which is low compared to how much money you printed. <laughs> so I think you are in a good shape. <laughs> if you are doing this uh, every year, you're gonna, you're gonna get more inflation. So the problem in Argentina is that the government is using, is printing money or basically spending money on, on, on many things. So it's a way of financing the, the government. In the US, I think was one shot. Of printing a lot of money and in Europe the same because of COVID. And if you look at the numbers today, they're not printing much more money. They're increasing the interest rates. So, it, so I think the inflation in the, in the U.S. and in general across the world is going to go down in the next few, I don't know, six, 12, 18 months. It's not going to be a problem anymore. Here you have uh, inflation every year because, you know, again, the government prints more money to finance the budget. And this is something that everybody knows. <laughs> so everybody can anticipate to that. And you increase the prices, you increase the wages, you, you buy dollars. So it's kind of a game where people are very used to play with. Um, in the US now it's a new, <laughs> it's a new game for you guys. Sorry for that, but we were, we were playing this for many years. So people, you know, know how to play it here. Uh, perhaps in the US, Europe and the rest of the world, something new, but. The good news for you is that I think that inflation is going to go down uh, soon. And in Argentina, inflation is not going to go down soon. So we have, uh, mm. we have to continue playing this game. Yeah, interesting. I mean, two things that stand out to me, two questions. Why does Argentina continue to play the game if you know how the game is played and everyone knows how it's played? And, and the other thing I want to ask you is how do you, how do you win the game? How do you, how do you uh, play the game well? If you're in a situation where there's high inflation, yeah, the thing is that if you know that the prices are going up, you basically increase salaries. So at the end of the day, you have some kind of, um, you know, the dollar is going up, then inflation is catching up. So we have some kind of a uh, path through from inflation to the US, to the currency, and and it's it's a game that you can play. But at the end of the day, the result of that game is that the economy is not growing. So you have some kind of cycles. And then at the end of the day, Argentina is not growing in the last 10 years. So you're not generating employment. You're not growing as a, com as a country. You're not develop developing the country more. So you have more poverty. So in every cy cycle of inflation, you start the cycle with a higher level of poverty because, you know, the, the, the people that have few resources uh, will suffer more inflation. So now we have around 50% uh, poverty rate, which is huge number and I don't know 10 years ago we had 25% poverty so I think this game it's it's a loose game for, for society as a whole you can survive if you can work for for, a, for abroad or you can make dollars or you work in technology you can do a good living but as a country Argentina is, is not doing well because of, uh, of this problem there is a quote uh, of Lenin <laughs> saying that if you want to destroy the capitalism, you have to start with a currency. So if you don't have a currency, you cannot create a, a, a process where basically some people save money in pesos and then that saving turns into investment and you generate basically growth in the economy. Uh, without, with inflation, it's very difficult to, to generate that cycle because people 
move from pesos to dollars and they don't reinvest the, the, the money anymore because they don't know what is going to be the return on investment in pesos because you don't know how inflation is going to be. So at the end of the day, it's a very bad game uh, for the country. And I think we need to find a way that the politics, in one sense, which are the ones that are printing the money, but also the society as a whole, understand that there is no way to continue playing this game because we're going to lose uh, for sure. So that's basically my, my political and economic analysis of Argentina. Uh, there is some kind of, it's like alcoholism, you know? <laughs> you continue drinking alcohol, you need to stop. And when you stop, you have to feel the pain of not drinking more. I think in Argentina, the society as a whole and the politicians in power are not willing to have that pain of stop uh, drinking alcohol or printing money. Uh, and I think at, at some point, that's something we, we should have to, to, to go through. Yeah, no, I really appreciate your perspective having, you know, live, lived and live in Argentina and run a financial, uh, protocol and company. Do you, do you feel like that there, that are, when Argentina gets to the point, and I like Argentina because it's an example that would surely be consistent with other patterns of inflation. I mean, it's, I don't view Argentina as unique in the, uh, in the, in the way that society would react to inflation in some ways. Like, you know, what people are doing in Argentina is perfectly rational. You want to switch into a more stable currency. Is the problem just not bad enough? And then when it comes, when it becomes bad enough, is there going to be, do you see it as a, uh, a path to like a political revolution or is it more, does something dramatic need to happen or is, is it, is it a smaller course correction to stop printing as much money and, generally get the country's monetary system back on track or, or let me throw last curveball do you see maybe a, a a a viable pathway forward is using bitcoin as the reserve currency similar to what el salvador yeah let me start with the last quote so i think argentina we have crypto adoption but it's bottom up so people are switching very quickly from pesos to dollars every month so there are wallets like lemon Velo, Bit, even Binance. So there are like I don't know, 10 different wallets. And there are more than 2 million people that download those apps in the last year. Uh, and they are switching from pesos to USDC, USDT, so stablecoin, uh, doing that very quickly without any government incentives rather than print money. So it's a bottom-up uh, crypto adoption, which is the opposite from Salvador, for example, we have Top down, the government sets the rules and people start using Bitcoin. But the funny story is that in Salvador, we don't have inflation because it's a dollarized economy. <laughs> so there is no much, there is, that's why population, uh, there is no incentive to move to stablecoin because they are already using dollars. What is true is that they are using Bitcoin because it's a way of uh, basically having some kind of uh, bank account without having to have a bank account. So that's, I think, the use case for El Salvador. In Argentina, it's different. It's more to basically move from pesos to dollars and to keep your your money safe in some way. Uh, then I, 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 I study economics. I work at the central bank. I, I work at finance. So I spend a lot of time <laughs> trying to understand what's going on. And, uh, and, and when I was younger, there was a convertibility, one peso, one dollar. Then that regime went down, inflation started to come again. And I think there is a point where in order to have this revolution or this huge problem, you need to get to hyperinflation, which is something that Argentina had in the late 80s. Uh, we are not there yet. We have, I don't know. So there are three uh, levels of inflation. The level one, which is the one that the U.S. is at the moment, this one, when you track the inflation on a yearly basis. You know that the U.S. has, I don't know, 8% inflation at the moment. Then the second level is when you track inflation on a monthly basis. So I know that in Argentina, inflation is around 6% or 7% per month. And then the, the third level, which is the, the dangerous one, is when you track inflation on a daily basis. <laughs> and that's when you get hyperinflation. And that's when you see that the supermarkets are basically changing prices many times per day. And when wow. you get there, 
you get an hyperinflation and that's probably a big political uh, problem and you have a change in the government and people go to the streets and protest. So, so far we are level two. We are not yet in level three, uh, but it's a risky game where you can move from two to three very quickly. Uh, in the case of the US, you are, you are in level one. So to get to three, you're going <laughs> to, I think you, you're not going to get, get there very soon. Uh, but yes, I think that the inflation game is not good. Uh, I have, I think everybody understand if, that if you print a lot of money at the end of the day, you get inflation. That's very clear. There is uh, no, no other answer to that. And I think in the US, you, the Fed realizes that Inflation was a huge problem and then react a little bit late. And now probably they're going to overreact, which is not good. But at the end of the day, inflation is not going to be in the pro- a problem in the US or in Europe or the rest of the world. Uh, and no, I cannot say the same for Argentina because uh, so far here, the inflation is growing and the government continues to print money. So there is a high probability that we go from tracking inflation on a monthly basis to tracking inflation on a daily basis. And that's when things start getting more more difficult. And and why not just raise interest rates? I mean, when you were at the central bank in Argentina, is there some internal cultural pressure to not raise? Because it seems like the solution to interest rates is fairly uh, sorry is to the solution to inflation is fairly clear. Stop printing as much money, make it hard, make it more expensive to get access to to money. Why why not just move in that direction? The central bank in Argentina has the higher interest rate rate, the interest rate policy in the world. It's 60% interest rate uh, is the one that the central bank has today. But uh, they also have their own debt instruments that are paying debt based on that interest rate. So when they increase the interest rate, they have to print more pesos <laughs> in order to pay back the debt that they have created in order to absorb part of the money that they are creating. So it's not just to raise interest rate. You have also to basically slow down the level of money that you are printing. So you have to reduce the level of monetary policy or the percentage increase in the monetary base. So, and that, that's the solution at the end of the day. If you only increase the interest rate, but you continue to print money, that's a problem. Um, mm. uh, the solution is very clear. It's in some way, it's simple, but from a political perspective, you know, someone has to pay the political, uh, you know, uh, has to pay some kind of a uh, fee <laughs> or political. Uh, so the politicians don't want to, to give, yeah, bad news and don't want to pay the price of doing something that it's good in the medium term, <laughs> but you have to suffer in the short term. So I think that, uh, it's, that's why we don't have a uh, solution yet. Until we get into a bad shape, I think the, the problem is not going to be said, which is basically what happened in Argentina in the 80s. You have inflation, high inflation, hyperinflation, and then you get to convertibility and you get to 0% inflation, but you need to put one peso to one dollar, which is a, a rule that is very strict. At the end of the day, 10 years after that, you have a, a new crisis because the government also is spending more than the revenues. <laughs> So that's basically how you solve this problem. You have to spend less than uh, your revenues. If you do that very simple rule, I think you can have a stable country, a stable currency, stable inflation, but that requires a change in the way that many things work today. So very simple to, to, to solve in theory, very simple to, to implement in practice. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers forget not your keys not your crypto software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost hacked or simply just misplaced my new sponsor the zengo crypto wallet is a total game changer bringing wallet security to a whole new level you have to check out zengo an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. 
It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Yeah, that makes sense. So many things are. When you were working in the Central Bank, did you feel that the culture was uh, just can you describe a little bit of the culture? Did you feel like they were smart people who were sophisticated, who had the ability to influence monetary policy or or not? And was that part of the inspiration to go and build your own protocol? Or I'm curious that what was your position was. Many years ago, when I was studying economics, like 15 years ago or more, uh, at that time, the central bank was very well done. The, the inflation was 4% year over year in Argentina. So there was a great team a very good central bank governor who used to be my, my boss in the private sector. So uh, at that time, in, in 2004, 2003, uh, the, the central bank did a great job. Uh, the problem is that uh, then, after, then the political the, the, the things changed and they put in charge someone that was not a good, uh, was very related to the, to the executive power, so they start putting money. But you know, for many years, you have great people working at the central bank, and then uh, that was not more the case when you know the politicians took over the central bank and independence here, and, and that's what we got in the last I don't know fifteen years. Mm. Uh, and and yeah. uh, I was just going to ask you about the the trans. What was the what were you doing at the time when you realized that you wanted to dedicate the next? so on many years of your life to building exactly protocol. Yeah, so long story short, I, I was born in Argentina, studying economics at the University of Buenos Aires, at the same time started working in the private sector, then I worked for a while in the central bank, then worked in the asset management firm, and then the 2008 crisis arrived, and my original plan was to continue studying finance, but then I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, started my first tech company in 2009 called Sumavisos, which was a search engine for classified ads. So it was a better way to search for cars, real estate, and jobs. Uh, my partner find a way to, to find his house during some kind of, a, let's say, some kind of Google for real estate. Instead of going to every website, you, you basically create a, a, a bot, and that bot will, will search for you. So we, we start with an idea, and we basically did very well with that startup. Then that startup uh, was uh, renamed to Properati, which was only for real estate. Uh, and we started with that company in 2012. At that moment, uh, one friend of mine, Santi City, uh, you know, introduced me to Bitcoin. So at that time, we bought some machines and we started mining Bitcoin at the office. We did some experience, experiments for one year. Bitcoin was around $400. Uh, I wrote an article in Medium. 10 years ago about that, but then, you know, was not very interesting because as an entrepreneur, I just, you know, the, 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 I can mint Bitcoin with some computers and that was all the what I can do. So it was not super interesting. I understood that the protocol, that the idea was amazing, but for me as an entrepreneur, it was not very interesting as to, to do things in, in the Bitcoin community or the Bitcoin development. So I continue running Properati. Uh, we sold that company in 2018 to Onex Group, which is part of NASPERS. We open offices in LATAM. Uh, and so from 2018, 2021, I was working in the, the and running property. But then uh, Bitcoin hit uh, $40,000. So I remember that I have one Bitcoin from, from that experiment. So I find a way to, to crack the password of the wallet that I had and start buying things and crypto and tokens. So I realized that there was a new thing called Ethereum, and you can basically program money with smart contracts and start at the beginning of last year, I started having coffee with many people in the crypto community in Argentina and the Ethereum community. And I understood very quickly that this was amazing. And uh, this was like getting to Disney World for the first time for me. Uh, and I said, okay, let's do something here. So I realized that the technology was amazing, but all the DeFi space was basically a way to the centralized casino where you have tokens and with different protocols, you can get more tokens. So the challenge was 
how we can use this amazing technology in order to provide a better credit market. So at the end of the day, the end consumer can have more choices when he wants to apply for credit or if someone in Argentina wants to save some money and deposit and have a better interest rate or a safer way to uh, well, deposit uh, the money he has uh, for the future. So we, at uh, the June of last year, we raised uh, $3 million with very good investors and entrepreneurs, some of them from Web2, some of them from Web3. And we, created, we, we, we start with the idea of how we can build a fixed rate protocol. So how we can uh, decentralize the time value of money. Because that's the first ingredient you need in order to connect DeFi with CIFA. Because otherwise, the interest rates are changing in every block, every 14 seconds. Uh, you know, the end consumer will not feel comfortable with that because the end consumer at the end of the day has a fixed salary or fixed income every month. So this type of people, normal consumer, it's risk coverers. So they can have a loan, but they need to know how much money they need to pay per month. So the first challenge was how we can create fixed rates on DeFi. And when we start with, idea, with that idea, some protocols also deploy on mainnet some uh, solutions to this problem, but our approach is it's quite different. So at the end of the day, we hire a team, we develop the, the protocol, we audit the protocol with five audit companies. We are launching it uh, on testnet next week during Ethereum Latam event here in Buenos Aires. And basically the protocol allows you to deposit, to borrow, both on variable rate and fixed rate for different periods of time. And the way to, to do that, it's a different approach, uh, which is basically uh, discover the interest rate based on the utilization rate of multiple pools of money with different maturity rates. Basically, that's it's how the protocol works. Uh, so far, you have Aave, Compound, Eula uh, Protocol, many money markets, where basically are discovering interest rate based on the utilization of, of one pool, of one asset, but there is no time involved. It's like money market. In every block, there is a new utilization, there is a new rate. So the innovation that we are doing is that we are creating on top of that the layer of time. So we have multiple uh, fixed rate pools with different utilization rates. So you can deposit or borrow, and the level of utilization that you can get will give you the rate that you have to pay. And that rate, it's unique for you in that transaction. And and the rate would be based on, I want to make sure I understand this. The, the, I understand variable rates, which would be correlated to the market supply and demand. When you calculate, a, when the protocol calculates a fixed rate, is it using, is it just using the the current supply and demand and liquidity to calculate that rate? And then like, it, and why would it, why can you explain why it's technically difficult, more difficult than the variable rate? Yeah, sure. So the variable rate, let's say there is no spread. So basically, if we de- if I deposit money and you borrow money, we are getting the same rate in every block. Let's say, to simplify the explanation, let's say the utilization rate I don't know it's fifty percent. That utilization rate it's a linear function, so you get I don't know. 7% interest rate. So I need to pay 7% in this block annually and you have to, and you will receive 7%. In the next block, it's a different utilization. It's a different rate. Okay. Now, if, if I want to deposit money or you want to borrow money at a fixed rate, let's say for one month, uh, and that, that rate is fixed. The, the problem is how you do it because in every block, it's the same rate. Because if I deposit money at 6%, the protocol has to basically guarantee myself that I'm going to get that 6% no matter what. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have a protocol called Anchor, <laughs> which went down because they offer high interest rate that was fixed, let's say 20%. And then they got the rate to pay back those depositors using some kind of treasury and, you know, betting on the price of Bitcoin and others. And that's super risky. One. That's all centralized centralized decisions by humans. I mean, that's not that's not a protocol. That's centralized, and that doesn't accomplish the solvency condition, which is that in every block, 
you have to assurance that the interest rates that you're going to get as a depositor are at least equal or higher than the interest rate that someone is paying to borrow the money. So you need to, to, to get that solvency condition accomplished in every block. So Anchor Protocol didn't accomplish that solvency condition. And the way to solve that problem in the variable rate is super simple because at the, in every block, you are receiving and, and I'm paying the same rate depending on the utilization rate. But then on the fixed rate, it's a challenge. Okay? So the solution that we found is like this. If you want to borrow money, okay, a fixed rate, we're going to give you the rate based on the utilization that you have in that specific pool. Let's say you want to borrow die on a pool that has a maturity date in the, I don't know, 30 of August, okay, at the end of this month. And you b- want to borrow 100,000 die. So you go to Xavi Protocol, the protocol calculates the, the ex post utilization rate that that pool is going to get with your borrow and tells you, okay, Mike, you have to pay uh, 7%. Are you okay with this? Yes. Like, if you are okay with that, you create a transaction and you have to pay 7%. Okay. So now, where's that money coming? That money is coming through because you are borrowing money. Who's giving the money at the beginning? So the variable rate pool is the one giving you the money that you just borrowed. Okay. And then we know that we're going to get 7% interest rate for the next 30 days because Mike did a borrow a few seconds ago. So we know that the protocols have, has, have that information. So with that information, we can guarantee that we can pay that rate to someone that wants to deposit fix. So we can match supply and demand using the variable rate as a proxy. So the variable rate will give the money first, and then someone can deposit fix when it's exposed that someone borrowed first on fix. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get an anchor protocol. <laughs> so it's the only way to, it's a legal warranty. So when you deposit, the, the, the interest rate could be 0% if nobody borrowed before. Okay. So basically what we are doing is that we are sharing with the fixed rate depositors the future interest rate that we are going to receive for the borrows that already happen on a fixed rate protocol, on the fixed rate pool on the protocol. Got it. Okay. So if somebody, if somebody puts in uh, $1,000 into the protocol <clears throat> equivalent and they get a 6% interest rate fixed quote, uh, they accept that trade. If that, if the, if, if they're, if in the future there is, the variable rate drops low. If the variable um, rate drops low, is there is there any price that the that you pay for? Is there any uh, is there any trade off that the borrower would pay for the fixed percent? Like, would would there ever be a situation where it says, "Hey, the the market can't meet your uh, fixed rate uh, contract. It has to liquidate your position and give you back the money." No, no, so. If you deposit fix, you're going to get the, the percentage fee that, uh, that you get when you deposit. And if you borrow fix, you have to pay that interest rate fix. So the protocol assures that that condition is always uh, accomplished. Then the variable rate pool is the one that in some way is taking the risk. Okay? Because the variable rate pool is the one giving the money on a fixed rate for, 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 a, or the ones that is, that wants to borrow money in the fixed pool. But then opens a, a position where someone can deposit fix. So when someone deposit fix, the variable rate receives the money back and gets a commission. Got it. Is this happening over time? Is there a, uh, a deposit amount, like the, the person giving the money to the protocol, the lender, th- is that person getting the interest rate all up front or are they getting it over some time period? So, if you deposit money, you're gonna get your uh, interest rate at the end of the period when the, uh, the maturity pool expires. Okay, so you get a, some kind of NFT certificate, like a time deposit. So, if you deposit 100 die, and let's say you deposit at 10 percent for one year, in one year time, you're gonna get 110 die. Also, the protocol allows you to do uh, an early withdrawal. So you can basically go out of this time deposit 
And basically, behind the scenes, we are doing the opposite operation. We are borrowing, we are borrowing money to get out of your deposit. And if you want to borrow fix, let's say you borrow 100 DAI for one year at 10%, in one year time, you have to pay 110 DAI. If you don't pay on time, you're going to get a, a fee per day, and then you're going to get liquidated in your collateral if you don't pay at some point. So the, the, the protocol also accomplished the solvency condition on the capital because there is a all collateral, and if you don't pay, you get liquidated. Uh, so you can basically deposit variable, you can borrow variable, you can deposit fix, and you can borrow fix. And if you deposit fix or borrow fix, you can get out of the position earlier, with early withdrawal or early repay. So it's we think it's the only protocol at the moment that allows you to do all these operations in the same place. So in some way, we think we are completing the credit market in DeFi, which is something that we need to do in order to then connect DeFi with CeFi, which is the next challenge for us. <laughs> uh, the first one yeah. is... Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you two things. One is uh, there's, a, there's you know, a number of other companies out there, protocols out there, Aave, Compound, a bunch of others. Are they, they're, you know, they're launched in the world. Um, are they not, are they not focused on building out the fixed rates or is, is it just a timing thing where they will at some point and you're just getting a jump start on the market? Yeah. In order to, to solve the fixed rate problem using the, the, the this approach of uh, discovering interest rate based on utilization rate, which is the same approach that Compound and I are using. It's not that you can basically fork Compound and Aave and add, I don't know, an extra contract. You need to basically, uh, you need to uh, do the protocol, everything from scratch. It's a different way of doing the protocol. So we are not forking those protocols. We don't have uh, even a line of code that is the same. So we only took the idea of discovering the interest rate based on utilization. And we are the only ones taking that idea into the fixed rate uh, problem. And in order to solve that problem, we also have variable rates as a plus <laughs> because that's what we get. But, uh, the, the original idea was to, to solve the fixed rate problem. And in order to solve that problem, we also put everything in the same problem. So variable rates plus fixed rates. And there are a couple of differences also with the interest rate model, which is a, it's not a linear function. It's a rational function with better mathematical properties. The risk model, it's different. So you have more capital efficiency. So there are many differences in the process. So we, we basically, uh, you know, we can talk about all the details, but just to explain to the audience, uh, exactly protocol is the only protocol where you can deposit or you can borrow money at a variable rate or at fixed rate at the same time for different maturity rates. And this is a new product. We think it's very interesting for the DeFi community because you can do many different trades. You can basically, if you want to bet on the price of ETH going up, now you can do it, but you have to pay the, you have the risk of the interest rate going up. So with exactly protocol, you can hedge the interest rate risk with fixed rates. Uh, you can arbitrage fixed rates with, uh, with variable rates, or you can arbitrage different fixed rates, or you can just deposit money on a fixed rate, or you can just borrow money on a fixed rate. So you can do many things with this protocol for different necessities, arbitrage, uh, investment, savings, whatever. Uh, so we need to test product market fit and then move on to the next step, which is basically connect this with the real world and to, to connect with the end user. And in order to do that, we have some ideas after a V1, but this is the first step in order to, to get to the end consumer. Oh. And, and you said you didn't fork this from another project. How difficult is, is, is it to build a, a pro, uh, an exchange like this? From scratch. Uh, yeah, so I think the answer is there are a lot of forks, but there are not a lot of uh, protocols. So if you look at the how many, I think that thousands of, uh, of forks of uh, Uniswap, Compound, um, even Maker or that approach. So there are a lot of forks, but there are a few unique protocols in each of the categories. No? In borrow and lending, you have Compound Ave, now you have Euler, and then in fixed rate, you have, I don't know, Element, Yield. We have, I don't know, let's say 10 protocols total. Um, 
it's a good number, but you know, if, if you, everybody can create a protocol. So that's why you don't have 1,000 protocols. Uh, part of the answer is that it's, it's difficult. There's a huge challenge in terms of building the, the smart contracts, auditing the smart contracts. It's very cost, costly to pay to the auditors, uh, to find auditors. Uh, so there are a few, I don't know, there are probably a couple of thousands of people in the world from 8, 8 billion people. There are a couple of thousand with experience doing smart contracts in Solidity. So the first problem is that how you, how you build the team and then when you build a team, how you build a product, and then when you build a product, how you check the security of the product, how you do audits, and then when you go to market and you launch the protocol, how you get pro market fit and survive all the potential hacks. <laughs> so it's a long, long journey, and it's quite difficult for many reasons. So I think that's why you don't have so many uh, unique protocols uh, in the market. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Yeah. And you, you guys haven't launched yet. You, you were doing a bunch of different conferences. Is the general strategy uh, build up into the point where you're ready to do a beta launch, uh, testnet, go to a bunch of conferences, promote it, and try to get users to test it and then push it live? Uh, how have you thought about like the marketing yeah. side to growing a protocol? Yeah, I think we, we have, or a protocol in general, have, have uh, two big risks. The number one risk is security. So in order to solve, to minimize that risk, it's not that you're going to solve it, but at least try to minimize the risk of a hack is to basically do as much audits as you can with the best auditors on the market. So we had five audits at the moment in different stages of the protocol with CoinSpec, ChainSafe. We're going to have one with ABDK. We did also a Certic. I'm gonna, we did a mathematical audit of the, of the, of the model, uh, with CryptoCon. So we spent a lot of money and a lot of time working with auditors. And now we're gonna do the last round of audits, uh, at the end of August. So security first. We need to work with auditors, takes time. And that's one of the things. In the meantime, the second risk is not to get pro market fit. So you can have a very good protocol, super secure, but nobody's using it. So you need to find a way to get users. And in L1, in Ethereum, you know, the, the users that are moving the numbers of today are the weights, are users that are, you know, moving, I don't know, more than 100K per transaction. Uh, so you need to get the attention of the weights. And that's why we talk to whales, we go to conferences, we explain what we are doing, we, we open the testnet. So it's a way of creating the community test the product and then when you launch you know we have different strategies to get more traction and then you can basically mint your own token for decentralizing the, the governments governance but also as a way of creating growth for the protocol because people deposit money or borrow money to get your token uh, and also to get uh, a way of participating in the DAO. so there's a path to decentralization and during that path to centralization, you can create growth for a product. But just to resume, basically, you need to solve, you need to minimize the risk of, of security, of a potential hack. And then you need to minimize the risk of uh, not getting pro market fit. And the way to do that is to create a community, to talk to users, to talk to ways, to go to events, and, and basically to, to decentralize governance via token. That's basically the, the roadmap that we have uh, for the next month. And, and early on, when you, ra you raised three million, is that about right? One year ago, we raised three million. Uh, we hired a very good team. We are a small team, less than ten people. Uh, the, the, the product it's, it's it's done. So we are opening the testnet next week, uh, and then the idea is to receive product market fit from from the users in the testnet, and then do a, a, a free a post freeze 
uh, at the end of this month and then do the last three audits at the same time and then uh, fix all the potential problems that the auditors find and then launch to main. That basically the path. Of course, took more time than expected. I always expected that we can do this, I don't know, in six months, nine months, took us more than a year. Uh, but the pro that we are launching, it's, I don't know, 10x better than I thought we can do at the beginning because we have fixed rate, variable rates, and we have a lot of innovation in order to solve this problem. So uh, exactly, it's going to be exactly B1, which is the version that we are launching. It's very similar to exactly B2 that we imagined one year ago. So I'm very how did you... Um... Yeah, I love it. I'm excited to see the launch. How did you raise money early on? Was that a challenge or was there, was it personal connections or was it through the crowd or how did you, because when you raise for something like this, it's often just difficult for an investor to assess the value. It's a different type of investment than, you know, a typical company. How was that process? Yeah, I think there are two things there. Number one is the timing. It was a bull market. So, you know, many projects got money. At the same time, because there was too much liquidity on the market, that's fact. That's very important factor. <laughs> uh, and the second factor is, in my case, it's that I already did two companies, sold one of those companies, raised money in the past. Some have some credibility in the investors. So basically, the the bet was that I have a plan and I can achieve that plan and I can solve this problem without nothing, just a PowerPoint. Or, or my explanation. So they're betting that in this case that entrepreneurs have a track record and they will find a way to solve the problem. Uh, now, if we're going to raise more money before launching, which is something that we're going to probably do, uh, we have a product, we have a team, we can show how it works. So it's not just betting on the uh, confidence that an entrepreneur can build something. Now, we can see the product and then the risk if, if it's secure and if people will use it, but as we are going through this audit process and we are using these uh, testnet launches so we can show to investors that we are doing a good job on those fronts also. So in different stages, you, you have different uh, things to show. At the beginning, it's just basically uh, you are betting, the investors are, bet, are betting, betting on the entrepreneur. Uh, I think later on, they're betting on the team, they're betting on the product, and later on, they're betting on the metrics. <laughs> and how the money is flowing in that product or in that company. Where do you think uh, Where do you think crypto is, maybe specifically DeFi, in five years, 10 years? Uh, do, do you think it is mass market adopted? Uh, people are largely moving away or have moved away from banks. Uh, does it happen country by country or demographic by demographic? How do you sort of see the expansion or the key things that need to happen in DeFi uh, over the, the mid to long term? Yeah. For example, Argentina in the last year, only one wallet, which is called Lemon, they receive uh, 1 million people download Lemon app in Argentina in one year. <laughs> one app just to, you know, move from pesos to crypto and to save money and to earn money, and, you know, to survive in some way of the inflation here. This is just uh, an example, but uh, it's difficult to predict the future, especially in crypto. But I think that if you look at, for example, e-commerce companies like Mercado Libre in Latin America or Amazon in the US, they change completely the way you do basic e-commerce and you buy things. Even with the pandemic, that trend only accelerates more. So now, for example, my mother doesn't go to the shop two blocks away. She just gets to Mercado Libre app, press one button, and in the same day, she receives whatever she wants. And this is just like magic. Behind the scenes, Mercado Libre has Mercado Power for payments, warehouses, logistics, credit, <laughs> I don't know, a huge amount of things. But they were working on that for the last 20 plus years in order to get to where they are. So I think if you look at crypto industry as a whole, I'm sure that crypto will change uh, the banking industry, the financial industry a lot. So far, you have seen these neobanks, fintechs, which are basically better UX, very nice apps. But behind the scenes, you have the same cobalt 
database uh, uh, and, and what a system behind, and it's connected to to many central to a central bank. So every country has a different rule with different uh, databases that are closed and are not efficient. So if you deposit money on Friday, you're gonna get it on Monday. If you want, for example, if we have an account in the U.S. and you want to pay someone in Europe, and you wanted to do it on Saturday, you cannot do it. You have to wait for Monday because the FX market is not open on the weekends. So there are many examples. Or for example, if I live in Argentina, but I make dollars and I want to borrow money in the bank here, the interest rates are, I don't know, 70% in pesos. And I cannot borrow money in dollars, even if I make dollars. So that doesn't make any sense. So I think we have now Ethereum as a, le- as a layer in where people and companies and protocols can build software in order to get new solutions to the end consumer. Then the question is, the end consumer will use directly those solutions. For example, they get into DeFi, they will have a hardware wallet, they will use a MetaMask, or those protocols will be the backend of all the current fintechs and banks. So you can maintain the front-end, and then you have better technology on the back. So that's an open question, I think. But I don't have any doubts that the current uh, architecture of the financial sector is going to change for good. You're going to be more, you know, you, 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 you're going to have uh, open source, permissionless. You're going to see what is going on behind the scenes. Even all these crypto companies that went down in the last few months were not using uh, DeFi technology. They were just close companies, hedge funds taking out of risk. And in some way, a black box, but nobody understood what's going on behind the scenes. When exactly it's going to be a mainnet, all the information is going to be there. You go to Etherscan and you see the numbers by yourself. Uh, you don't have to trust on, on people or in institutions. You can see the numbers <laughs> and the numbers are on the blockchain. So in some way, if you look this as, a, as an economist, this is amazing. This is never happening history so far. I think Bitcoin was the first blockchain where you got the centralized money, in this case Bitcoin as money, and Ethereum is the, the most decentralized uh, uh, blockchain where you can decentralize basically any software. So basically it's a virtual machine that you can run software and it's decentralized. So basically you can program money. You can deposit, you can borrow, you can swap, you can do many transactions in a way that was not possible. So the open question is how we can get and use this amazing technology in order to solve real life problems because otherwise it's just uh, decentralized casino <laughs> and it's not decentralized finance. And I think in order to get there, there is an open question with regulators. We need to make sure that we have this, this idea of optionality where you can deposit money or borrow money without uh, telling the, the market who you are. They're just a wallet. But if you want to borrow, you have to put over collateral in order to get a borrow. But if you, you don't have over collateral, you just have your social credentials. You can use a scoring service in order to borrow money. And I think that's basically the next step that we're going to be working on, on, on in the next month coming up. So how you can borrow money without so much collateral. And, that's and, and do you think do you think the answer to that is uh, currently the way it works is there's a, a government that has, at least in the U.S., a couple of companies, three companies uh, that act as the credit scores. So they're like these black box databases where if you borrow money from a credit card company and you don't pay it back, then your credit score, which is maintained centrally, is decreased and and they can come after you legally. You know, the, the government could could knock in your door, they could arrest you. So there's a physical threat of enforcement for that loan and the integrity of the enforcement from the the loan origination all the way to them knocking on your door. It's it's pretty it's pretty high at least in the US. Like if I take out a $100,000 loan and I just disappear, like there's going to be somebody who's going to come come after me. Um, do you view do you view that as the necessary mechanism like if I take out a loan, I mean, on even on DeFi, if I take out the loan and I just don't pay it back, there has to be collateral. There has to be a price for that. How do you view the price on chain working? 
Yeah, I think that in general life, it's about incentives, okay? So you need to have an incentive in order to pay. <laughs> Otherwise, people will have a free lunch and they will borrow money and nobody will pay. So in DeFi today, if you don't pay, there is a collateral and there's a, a collateral uh, uh, liquidation fee that you get on top of your collateral. So if you don't pay the debt, you lose 10% of your collateral. It's not good. Um, in, in the traditional finance, you have loans that basically have collateral, like uh, a mortgage, uh, where if you don't pay, the bank will keep the house. Uh, but at the end of the day, the bank doesn't want to keep you the house. <laughs> the bank wants to keep you as a client over time. So banks don't make a lot of money with mortgages. Perhaps they get a very small spread. They want to, to get the consumer to be client of the bank for the next 10, 20, 30 years and offer you different products, credit cards, I don't know, insurance, uh, diff- different products. So the, 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 the idea is that um, you need to have an, an incentive in order to pay back the loan. The incentive could be a collateral or could be your reputation or your scoring or something, but you have to have something. But one way to start solving this is, uh, for example, in Argentina, let's say I come from another country, from Venezuela, and I'm here in Buenos Aires, I want to rent an apartment. So the owner of the apartment will go to an insurance company and say, Mike, just come to Buenos Aires. Nobody knows Mike. How can I rent the apartment to Mike? And the solution to that is that Mike will bring a couple of people that know Mike, let's say from the from the workplace or family members, whatever, but those people have credentials. And let's say those people will sign that if Mike doesn't pay, they will pay. Some kind of um, cost signature uh, model. Um, in that case, you don't have credentials, but you are using other people's credentials to uh, give uh, some kind of uh, incentive in order to pay. So just to give an example. So there are many ways to create these incentives. The more simple one is to put collateral, <laughs> which is the one that DeFi uses today, crypto collateral. But I think we need to, sh- to start thinking new ways of, of solving that problem. I think that with Serum Knowledge Proof, for example, which is something that is going to change the way we, 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 we it's going to be a game changer in my opinion, because you can what is it called again? Zero knowledge proof, CK proof. Zero knowledge proof. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically with zero knowledge proof, I can give a proof that, uh, I have a good core. I have a good uh, credit scoring without telling you who I am. So this is a, Got uh, it. So, sounds crazy, but it works. So there are new technology coming on the market that will allow us to create new financial products that, you know, it's going to be amazing. So that's, that's going to happen in the next, I don't know, 6, 12, 18 months. It's not going to happen in 10 years. It's going to happen in less than three. So I think that we are in a point where many new things are going to happen. Scalability, lower transaction fees, uh, scoring search. So many things want to start moving on very quickly in the next few months. And I think Ethereum is going to be the place to be in order to uh, you know, create protocols and, and provide new services. Is Ethereum, there's certainly a lot of talk about Ethereum split or the Ethereum 2.0. Is that a concern of yours? Do you feel like it's uh, at this point, we're recording on August 3rd. Is is it, uh, how do you sort of see the trajectory of that happening or the impact? Yeah. Uh, I've been following all the different test nets that move from proof of work to proof of stake. And I think they're doing a very good job. Uh, they are very confident, the people from Ethereum Foundation, that they are going to do it before uh, October, before DevConf. So I think they're going to do it. Um, from a scalability point of view, it's not going to change a lot. The scalability is more on the roll-up uh, side. So you have this uh, set of knowledge proof uh, solutions, and today you have these optimistic roll-up solutions with optimism for example, which is doing an amazing uh, job at the moment, Arbitrum. So you have like, um, in, in, in the Ethereum community conference, um, there was an announcement that Polygon has the solution for zero knowledge. 
and they're open source everything and they want to launch, I don't know, uh, the end of this year. So I think the next three, six months, the scalability of Ethereum is going to be amazing from a couple of transactions per second to perhaps 1,000 transactions per second, which is the number that, that Vitaly mentioned. But that's a huge increase in the order of multiple. So you can scale the number of transactions. If you can scale the number of transactions, you can reduce the transaction cost and you can start doing more things with the, with the field. So you can basically uh, do more things and you can connect in some way uh, DeFi with CFI uh, because otherwise the transaction costs are too high. Right. For- too high, too high for anything. Is, is there a current... <laughs> Is there a current time on this? That I know that's a hotly debated thing, but currently, is there a... Yeah, there is a timeline for, I think, 10 days. There's the last uh, testnet uh, uh, test. The, the, the last testnet that is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. And after that, I don't know, they're going to take a few weeks in order to do the okay. match. But we're looking at like roughly uh, in the in the months. We're not looking at like 2023. We're looking at like August, September timeframe. Yeah, I, if I had to bet, probably it's September, October. But during this year, for sure, I, I don't have doubts. So. Interesting. And do you you think? I assume the the inclination is it would affect price in some way. Like people would, if, if it goes well, price goes up. If it doesn't, somehow price doesn't. Do you have a feeling as to the how the de- deployment here changes the value, perceived value of Ether? Yeah, I think that the, for instance, the market is not pricing, in my opinion, very uh, in the correct way, the, the, the chances that the merge is going to succeed. So the chances are super high and the price didn't increase a lot, to give you my view. But, you know, at the end of the day, markets are some kind of bipolar. <laughs> So now, or mm-hmm. uh, the press um, before were super optimistic. I think the reality is some kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I think that more important than just the merge is the next new things that gonna occur, uh, happen after that, and all these scaling solutions that are gonna start moving very fast. Um, you're gonna get more transactions per second, lower cost, and that's the way to scale Ethereum. And then when that, when that happens, doesn't matter the price of ETH, because if you can pack, I don't know, thousand transactions in L2, in one transaction in L1, it doesn't matter the price of ETH, because you, you divide that price of gas in, in many transactions, or in thousand transactions. So I think the next, I don't know, six, 12, 18 months, uh, we're going to see a lot of changes and many, many, many things, good things happening innovation. And at the end of the day, all this should be something good for the end consumer because otherwise it's just a couple of guys making money with tokens, <laughs> which is basically what happened so far. But we need to push forward to use this technology in order to solve real life problems in a better way than, than today. That's for me the end game. The end game is it's a new technology. It's amazing. Okay. How we can use new, this new technology to solve a real life problem. Uh, and that that takes time, and you need to do experiments, and those experiments could fail. But when you find the solution and you scale the solution, I think it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love your perception here too. Uh, you have a really unique perspective given how close you are to everything. So I, I really appreciate that. And awesome background. You know, I really enjoyed this conversation, Gabriel. Do you want to mention a few places where you are personally online? We'll have links. Uh, to exactly in the show notes, but are you on Twitter or on Medium anywhere? Yeah, I, I'm very boring. My 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 name and last name together, so it's Twitter. In Twitter, I'm at Gabriel Brewer. In Medium, I'm at Gabriel Brewer. So everything is at Gabriel Brewer. Very boring. Uh, and then exact.ly or exactly.finance. It's the it's the URL of a protocol. And you know, next week or. If Latam, the 11th of August, uh, if you go to exact.ly, you will have access to the testnet so you can play with the protocol. And a couple of weeks after that, you're going to go to mainnet and you can use exactly as a user. And I don't know, Sweet. probably next year, you can use it as an end consumer in some other way. But 
first step is to decentralize the value of money in Sweet. Thanks, Gabriel. I learned a lot. I appreciate your time, man. I wish you the best. Keep keep doing your thing. Thank you, Mike, for the invite. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.